Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for the chance to worship again. Thank you for the power of your word, how it lifts our spirits just to read your word, Father. Help us as we worship through this next, next moments. Bless our pastor and speak through him, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If our little kids would go with Miss Sharon, she's going to take you guys over to Children's Church. All the little children, y'all head out. 
everybody else, if y'all pray with me real quick. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with me this morning as I preach your word to your people. Lord, I ask that you would speak through your truth in Scripture and that it would prepare our hearts and our minds to serve you. God, that you would help us to be able to effectively deal with the world that we live in in a way that brings glory to you. And Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. There is a, an ancient curse. I'm not sure if it is Chinese in origin. I think it is, but it goes something like this. May you live in interesting times. And we definitely, definitely live in interesting times. This week, I had the opportunity, many of you guys know I'm kind of a political junkie, and uh, I, I, I watch the news and read the news a lot. I, I was watching the confirmation hearings for our new Supreme Court justice, and there was a very interesting exchange that happened on, I believe it was either Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, in many ways, Supreme Court hearings are kind of kabuki. Uh, if, I don't know if anybody knows this. It's a traditional form of Japanese theater uh, where it's, it's very stylized and it's very symbolic. And, and that's really how uh, the Supreme Court um, confirmation hearings have become recently. No, like the fix is in. We all know how this is going to go. It's like professional wrestling, right? You know who's going to win, okay? And it's not the bad guy. Sometimes it is. But it's all scripted. And there's certain things that you say and certain things that you don't say. And it's this kind of battle of words to get somebody to say something on the record. Uh, in, in effect, what you're trying to do is, is get the Supreme Court justice to, or the person who wants to be to say what they actually think about things. And if, you, if you're on the, the team that wants that particular Supreme Court justice, then your job is to make sure that they don't say anything of any real substance uh, so that they can't get in trouble. Well, this week, uh, a, a senator from Tennessee asked the Supreme Court uh, nominee a very simple question, a question that for probably the entire history of mankind would have been kind of a no-brainer, right? Something that you ask a child in nursery school, and they give you kind of funny answers. But, but she asked, what is the definition of a woman? Now, let's be real. That question was asked for a very specific reason. It, it is because uh, this month sees uh, kind of a new, uh, a new age of, of gender politics opening on America right now as we had uh, a, a biological man win the NCAA swimming finals. And so everybody is thinking about this, and everybody is talking about this, and so this senator wanted to get the Supreme Court nominee to come out on the record with a definition of what a woman is. And this comes with some legal implications. And the Supreme Court nominee's response was very telling. It went something like, 
I don't know, I'm not a biologist. Now, if I'm the, that senator from Tennessee, I got to know that's probably what this person's going to say, right? She can't go on the record as any kind of definition of what a woman is because the side that she represents refuses to allow a description of what a woman is. They, if you listen to the descriptions that are made, it's very complicated what a woman is. It's a, it's a vast, and, vast and complicated series of criteria on a sliding scale that's, that's, that's very, very complicated. But as I'm listening to this with my children in the car, <laughs> there's confusion all around. Right? Because this is something that should be very easy to answer. Right? It should be very easy to say what is true, that a woman is an adult female. And yet we live in a time when truth, for all intents and purposes, has evaporated. Truth is no longer true. And to see this kind of attitude in what is, in effect the most powerful branch of our federal government, the Supreme Court, has, has got to be a little bit chilling. Right? Uh, ideas that just 10 years ago, 5 years ago, would have been unthinkable are now going to be enshrined with the power of law. And that has got to be and is incredibly disturbing to us. And yet, as so often happens, when we look at these things in light of Scripture, what we find is that nothing really is new under the sun. We have been going through and, and looking at the passion of Christ for the last several weeks, and we have watched as Jesus has gone through trial after trial before the various groups in the government in Jerusalem that seemed to hold power. These were the people who ruled all of the Jews. We saw him go before Ananias, the father-in-law of the high priest, the godfather of, of Israeli politics who pulled all of the strings and got his family members into positions of power, who was like a spider at the center of a vast web of relationships, tweaking and pulling and ensuring that all things happened the way that he wanted them to go. And, and we saw as even in the midst of his most powerful exercise of his might. He was but a puppet in the hands of God. That the Roman soldiers and the Jewish guards and the high priest and the godfather, all of these men were simply playing out roles that had been defined for them by God. That God in his sovereignty was in control of the process from beginning to end, working all things together for his glory and ultimately are good. And this isn't going to change as Jesus is brought before the most powerful person in all of Judea, the Roman governor. We're going to see that even in front of Rome's henchmen, Jesus is still firmly in control. We read in verse 28 of 
chapter 18, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now, when we read governor's headquarters, the word that they use is the praetorium. And the praetorium was the place of power in, in, a, in a Roman province. And they took him before the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. And for us to understand what's going on here, we need to kind of understand a little bit about Pontius Pilate and who he was. Pontius Pilate, by most of the historical references that we have, was not a great guy. Pontius Pilate was an opportunist. He was an ambitious man. He was originally from Spain, from kind of a, a nobody family. He went into the army, as a lot of Romans would do, to kind of build himself up. And in the army, somehow, he met the granddaughter of the emperor, a, a woman named Claudia. They hit it off and got married, and that punched his ticket. Now he was on the fast track to greatness in Rome. And so he kind of moved from position to position until finally he was given the governorship of Judea. Now, this isn't a plum. This is, in fact, a pretty rough job. It's not a job where you get a lot of money. So Roman governors at this time, uh, it was pretty much accepted that you would go to a province and you would try to make yourself as rich as you could while not making any mistakes that were so big that they would sink your career, okay? So Jerusalem is not a great place for that because everybody's broke and they're super mad all the time, okay? So you're not, there's not a lot of money you can extort or steal and there's lots and lots of people that don't like you. And so Pontius Pilate demonstrates over his about 10 years that he was in power that he wasn't really good at handling the situation, okay? Over and over again in the historical record, we see him making really bad mistakes, okay? Now, I, I've done some counterinsurgency in my time. I've been in places where people don't like me, and I'm looking at the things that Pontius Pilate does, and I'm like, oh, that's a rookie mistake. You hate to see that. He would do things like, I don't know, we need an aqueduct. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go take the temple money, the korban funds. This is the money that is set aside to do holy things. We're going to march into the temple, seize that money, and go use it to build an aqueduct. Now, aqueducts are great. Who doesn't like fresh water? But stealing the temple money to do it is not a great idea. On another instance, he took and marched into uh, kind of the Antonio Fortress overlooking the temple with these banners that had the image of Tiberius, the emperor, on them. Now, in Rome, Tiberius was a god. They worshiped Tiberius as a god. And so he is bringing in images of a god into the temple to which the Jewish people revolted. They had a great big riot. And, and Pontius Pilate said something like this. He's like, you know what? If you don't like it, well, then you can just try to take it all down yourself because I don't really care. So they came out in the streets and had a riot. And he was like, okay, my bad. I'll, I'll stop, right? So not only was he stupid, okay, he, he was also a coward. And so over and over and over again, he's going to do dumb things. At one point, he goes into the temple itself and kills people as they're in the process of doing sacrifice. We know that from the book of Luke. Right, so Pontius Pilate is not a great guy. He's not well respected by the people that are there. And today is not going to be a great day for Pilate. 
Pilate's normal headquarters is in, is in Caesarea, down on the coast. It's a much nicer place. He lives in one of Herod's old palaces. But during Passover, a time traditionally associated with the, the Jewish rioting season, he would go to Jerusalem to try to keep things calm. For whatever reason, he brought his wife with him this time, and they're kind of set up in the Antonio Fortress because that's where you live in a city filled with people that hate you. You, set, you live in a castle. So he wakes up in the morning. It's been a really rough night. His wife has been up all night. So he knows that the high priest has gone to arrest Jesus, and he knows this because the high priest had some Roman soldiers with him. So at some point, the high priest came to him and said, hey, we're gonna, we need your help. We need some backup. We're going to go take this guy down. And uh, Pontius Pilate was like, okay, you can take these troops and go do it. His wife finds out about it. She has nightmares all night, right? She's up all night with these horrible dreams about Jesus and what's going to happen. Well, probably around 6 o'clock in the morning, he hears a knock on his door. And, and that's a terrible feeling to get, guys in the middle of riot season, and you, you get a knock at 6 o'clock in the morning, and there's bustle going on all around you, and they come in, and they shake him awake. They're like, hey, uh, uh, Governor, we, there's a guy downstairs. It's a big group of, of Jewish officials. They need to see you. And so he rolls out of bed, and he throws on his toga, puts on his sandals, and he kind of shuffles down there. He's like, oh, what do these people possibly want at six o'clock in the morning? Do we really, really have to do this? Do we really have to do this right now? And the exchange that we see with them kind of goes a long way towards describing this antagonistic relationship between Pontius Pilate and the Jews. The Jews, were told, will not even enter his house because they are afraid of becoming ritually unclean. Now, I just want to stop there for a second, and I want to look at the irony of this. These are people that are so concerned with ritual purity that they will not enter the house of a Gentile before the Passover that are in the process of killing their own Messiah. If that seems ironic to you, it's intended. John said it that way in order to be ironic, to demonstrate how absurd these people were. And so Pilate comes down. He, he, can't even, he can't even meet with these people in a civilized way because they hate him so much they won't even come into his house. And he walks out. He goes out to them and says, what accusation do you bring about this man? Like, what, what are we doing this morning, guys? What, why are we doing this? What, what did he do wrong? And, and you, you want to know what the Jews' response was? They said, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. And, you know, and you just gotta, you gotta be thinking, like, Pilate has got to be just breathing super deeply. I'm like, I, I'm not gonna kill all these people right now. I'm totally not gonna do it. I'm not gonna order, because why are you trying my patience? I just give me a straight answer, guys. Tell me what you actually think. Tell me what's actually going on. Now, I, 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 want, I want to be really clear here. 
Pilate didn't magically grow a conscience. He is an amoral political opportunist who has zero problems killing people. Okay, he's got zero problems with it. But he's also made a lot of mistakes in Jerusalem by acting impulsively, and these men have no love for him. So as he shows up at 6 in the morning, and they really, really want this to happen, he's got to be asking himself, is this something that's good for me, or is this going to blow up in my face? Am I really going to uh, execute a, a popular local leader the day before Passover? And right as he walks out the door, it doesn't help that as he walks out his door, his wife grabs him and pulls him off to the side and says, I don't have anything to do with this man. Like, don't have anything to do with this. This is bad. This is a bad situation. And gentlemen, those of you who are married know that when your wife pulls you off to the side and says, don't do this, it's generally a good idea to listen to them. But Pilate can't get off that easily. And so he goes out there and he, and he asks them what they want. And, they, and they, they say, well, if this man wasn't doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Now, you've got to look at it from the Jews' perspective. right? They're talking to Pilate, who has zero problem killing people. And he's like, now, now you have qualms? Now, now we're going to be super judicial about this? We brought you this guy. Can you not do the one thing that you're really good at? Can you please not just kill this guy? Like, are we really? We brought him to you. He's a troublemaker. You should kill him. Well, by now, Pilate is, he's getting annoyed with them. And he, so he says, well, take him yourself. Judge him by your own law. Okay, now what, what does he mean here? He means, I don't care what you do with him, just don't be here. Okay, he said, like, if, you, if he disappears, I don't care. Right, we know that the Jews have zero problem killing people outside of the judicial process. We know that because a couple of months from now, Stephen is going to be stoned to death in the same place. they got zero problem going and lynching somebody. He's basically saying, would you just go lynch this guy and not bother me? But the Jews respond to him, oh no, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Right? This is because five years before this, the Romans had come in and taken away their ability to try capital crimes. And they're really bitter about it. Because it's kind of a slap in the face. They're like, no, we couldn't possibly do anything to him. I mean, we, we're not qualified. Only the super wise Romans are wise enough to be able to deal with something like this. We've got a lot of different things that are going on here. They could have just dragged him off and killed him. But see, Caiaphas and Annas don't want Jesus to disappear and die in darkness. They, they don't want the problem to be solved quietly. No, no, no. They want Jesus to be publicly humiliated and crucified. Because if he is crucified, then that means that he is accursed. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. They know that if they can crucify Jesus, then all of his followers and everybody who's watching after him will be like, okay, so this is not the guy we should have been following. The Messiah doesn't get crucified. 
They wanted Jesus to be executed in a public way. But they also wanted something else to happen too. They didn't want it really to be on them. Because Jesus has a lot of people that sympathize with him. And if the Jews are responsible for killing him, then they're all going to go to the Jewish leadership. But if the Romans kill him, they can say, well, you know those Romans, they're bloodthirsty. What are you going to do? Wheels within wheels, games within games. All of this stuff is happening at the same time. And yet all of these people are puppets. Because the real reason that Jesus has to go before Pilate, the real reason Jesus has to be crucified, is because God has ordained that that would happen. Right? Jesus said way early on, I have to be lifted up like the snake in the desert so that all who look at me will be saved. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies that have been made about him. And so while the Jews and Pilate think that they're in this contest of wills with each other, and they think they're very smart. The reality is, they are all walking down a path that has been set for them by God. See, the people who are responsible for putting Jesus to death are filled with hatred and distrust for each other, and yet God's weaving their evil, self-centered actions into a tapestry of grace for His glory. And I just want to stop for a second, and I want to remind you guys that no matter how powerful our opponents may seem, no matter how evil the people that oppose us are, none of them exist outside of the power and the plan and the sovereign will of our God. We've got to keep that in our mind as we watch things go down the drain here. As every day we turn on the TV and it gets worse and worse and worse, we got to remember that the people who oppose the gospel today are miserable and confused. And if we do that, we can avoid one of the biggest pitfalls that Christians fall into, and that is hating our opponents. I mean, be honest, when you watch the kind of things that we're watching on TV, when we see the way that our society is going, maybe when, when, you, get, uh, uh, when you get opposed by people at work or, or you see Christians in other countries being persecuted, it is hard not to begin to hate these people, right? To, 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 to be like the sons of thunder, right? Like, I, 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 I get James and John. Asking Jesus to call down fire on us. I mean, there's been a couple of times where I've been like, please, uh, I mean, maybe just, just a little fire. Just, I mean, just a little. Okay, a lot. of. Just, please just burn it down, God. But I want you to hear me. The people are not the enemy. They're the battlefield. The people are not our enemy. The, the people that oppose us are the battlefield to be fought over. Right? Our job is not to go and kill the ungodly. We are not the righteous sword of God. We are God's witnesses. 
Our job is to live lives so before the unbelievers that they give honor to our God. That's our, that's our job. It's to tell people what truth is, even as they spit in our face. Like if you haven't got that yet, then Christianity is going to be super frustrating to you. If you think Christianity is about power and about position and about being liked by the people around you, then you picked the wrong faith. There's other stuff you, you can do. Go call Bono and ask him what, what he does. You can go do that. Or Madonna. See, we're in, the, we're in the being hated business. That's our job. We're to be an aroma of life to those being saved and an aroma of death to those that are turning away from Christ. Well, let's see what happens. So Pilate is annoyed with the Jewish authorities but, but see, they're not stupid. They've done things in such a way that he cannot ignore them. He's, he's forced to become involved. One of, one of the things that I've noticed as I've grown older and, and my kids are in the public school system, and as we advocate for other people, when you're dealing with the government, there are magical words that you say. And people can kind of stonewall you and put you off and not want to talk to you until you say a magic word. And then they have to deal with you. Oh, my child has a disability. Okay, well, I have to deal with you now. Um, when you're dealing with uh, people that are mentally ill, if you take a mentally ill person to the hospital and you try to get them help, that hospital will push you away and push you away and push you away until you say the magic words, I think this person is going to hurt themselves. As soon as you say that, they are legally bound to help you, okay? And the Jews know what Pilate's magic word is. You know what it is? Civil insurrection. We read in Luke what happened. He said they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, most of this is a lie. Jesus didn't tell people not to pay taxes. In fact, he told them to pay taxes. But these are accusations coming from leaders that Pilate just can't ignore. So he's like, oh, man, okay, come on. Come on in, Jesus. Let's sit down and talk. So he brings him in, and he starts to, he starts to talk to him. The first question he asks is, are you the king of the Jews? Let's, let's get this out in the open here. If you're, the, if you're claiming to be the king of the Jews, just tell me so I can kill you in peace. But Jesus knows that it's not that simple. Christ responds to Pilate's question with a question of his own. He asks Pilate, he says, did you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? For Pilate, the morning just keeps getting longer and longer. He's like, oh, good. Another person who answers a question with a question. Fantastic. That's what I was looking for this morning. But see, Jesus understands that if he doesn't understand what Pilate is actually saying, he doesn't know how to respond. So how does Pilate respond well he responds in frustration he says am i a jew 
I, like, I don't care who you are or what you say you are. I don't care anything about you. I don't love you. I don't hate you. I nothing you. Your nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. Right? Like, you're here for a reason. Nobody just woke up one morning and was like, you know what would be cool? If we woke up and bothered the governor and brought, me, brought this guy in. Like, you did something. You're covered in blood. You've been beat up. Somebody's mad at you. So what did you do? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. It's like, okay, I understand what you're asking now. You want to know if I'm a king. I am a king. But I'm not a king the way you think of kingship. Well, Pilate, who's not really paying that close of attention, focuses in on a king. He says, oh, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So what is he saying here? He's saying, yeah, you're right, I'm a king. But I'm not the kind of king that rules through power. I'm not the kind of king that you're used to. I'm not like Herod Antipas or, or Herod Archelaus. I, I'm not the kind of king that you're used to. I have been sent with a message. I am a king and my kingdom is truth. And those who hear truth and listen to truth will listen to me. My subjects are the people that listen to the truth. This is what he has been saying over and over again throughout his entire time in Jerusalem. How does Pilate respond? At this point, he understands exactly what's going on. He's like, okay, this is a religious problem between crackpots that I don't want any part of. And, and, and his response is very telling. You, you can almost hear him roll his eyes as he turns his back on Jesus and he goes, what is truth? What is truth? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And Pilate doesn't care about any of that. Jesus doesn't has come to tell people about the way that the world works and, and the way that the universe is and how God loves the people that are there. And, and Pilate doesn't care because Pilate is looking at things in terms of power and politics. He is in a contest between himself and another group of people that care about power and politics. And he has no time for truth. Because, hear me, truth is distracting. See, truth transcends earthly power. If you have power, you don't want to talk about truth because it can derail you. It can limit you. That's what's happening in our country right now. You have a group of people that have taken over the control of the narratives and they don't want to talk about truth because truth limits them. They want the ability to determine how things are and to dictate that to you. But, but watch this. Jesus is sitting in front of the most powerful man in Judea, the man who literally has control, the power of life and death over him, and he has taken control of the entire operation. 
He is the one that's on trial, and yet he's cross-examining Pilate. He's turning the interrogation around and interrogating Pilate, and he's, he's picking apart Pilate's worldview, and Pilate is not having it. Pilate's not excited about this. See, Pilate didn't want to talk about truth because truth transcends power. And we live in a time when people who want to banish the idea of truth, they want to banish truth because they hold all the power. They control the media. They control academia. They want to be able to set the tone. Just like Pilate wanted to control the narrative. And when we come across people like this, it can be scary. It can be disheartening. It can lead us to, to kind of hide and, and not want to talk about things that are uncomfortable, right? We don't want to challenge the idea of truth with other people because, because we want to be nice, right? We, we want to be polite. We want to be kind. But I need you to understand this. We serve one who is truth. And if we deny truth, we deny him. God didn't come and send his son to save you so that you could be nice or polite or kind. He sent you to be a witness of the truth. And sometimes that means making people upset. It means, sometimes it means telling people that they believe a lie. I'm going to say something deeply offensive right now. Sometimes I'll tell you, like I say offensive things and I don't mean it, and if I offend you, it's because I mean to. So this is intentionally offensive. A man cannot turn into a woman. Okay? And a woman cannot turn into a man. That's not how God designed it. And the fact that what I said is deeply offensive and may in fact get our podcast taken down off of Facebook shows you where we are. But the fact that we live in that world right now does not mean that we are not still obligated to speak the truth when we have the opportunity to. We are servants of the truth, brothers and sisters. We are the servants of a God who is truth. And if we deny truth, we deny him. But it's even beyond that. Because it is not loving or kind or polite or nice to allow people to blunder around in darkness. If you had a friend who was walking down the center of the subway track, it would not be kind to be like, oh, hey, man, you live your truth. Your truth is you're, living, you're walking in a tunnel. I'm like, no, no, you're walking on railroad tracks and you're going to get squished. You're not being kind or polite or nice by not saying, hey, man, there's a train coming. Most importantly, though, it's our job to serve the one who saved us. He came to serve as a witness at the cost of his life, and he has called us to be witnesses even if that means people hate us. Well, at this point, Pilate has decided that Jesus is innocent. And more than innocent, right, because Pilate doesn't really care about innocent or guilty, he is way more trouble than he's worth. 
Like, Pilate may be stupid, but he's not so stupid that he's going to inject himself into an internal religious discussion on the day before Passover. That's an epically stupid thing to do. So he's like, nope, I'm looking, and we, we've heard right Vladimir Putin, off-ramps. Pilate's looking for an off-ramp right now. He's looking for a way that he can make this not his problem. Right? You've heard the expression, not my monkeys, not my circus. That's what he's thinking right now. He doesn't want any part of this. So what does he do? Well, it is the first thing that any good politician does. He's like, this isn't my jurisdiction. Did you say you're from Galilee? Ho-ho, I know where you need to go. I shouldn't be trying a Galilean. What a coincidence. Herod Antipas is in town. I'm going to ship you over to him. Now, it helps that Pilate and Herod Antipas hate each other. So he's like, you know what? If this can tear Herod down, let's do that. So he ships him off to Herod. We see this in, in the Gospel of Luke. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem. Right? And so what happens? Well, Herod has been wanting to talk to Jesus for a long time, ever since he killed his cousin, John the Baptist. Right? So he's like, hey, I want to talk to Jesus. And they bring him in, and Jesus is not playing Herod's game. So Herod dresses him up like a king, beats him, spits on him, and sends him back to Pontius Pilate. And you know, that's got to be annoying too. Like he just shipped Jesus off. He's sitting down to have breakfast with his wife. He's like, whew, this was close, man. This almost went sideways. Knock, knock, knock. Here's Jesus again. So off-ramp number one didn't work. So what are we going to do next? Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this sow's ear and we're going to turn it into a silk purse. I'm going to take Jesus and I'm going to use him against the Jewish leadership that I hate. Well, how do we do that? Well, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take him outside and I'm going to appeal over the heads of the, of the Jewish people. Right? I'm going to tell him, I don't think this guy's guilty of anything. Right? Because after all, if he can get the Jewish people to shout down their own leadership, then it humiliates them. But then he's going to do something even more diabolical. He's going to put them on the horns of a dilemma. He's going to say, I don't think this guy is guilty. And you know what? Because I'm such a good guy, I'm going to, I'm going to follow one of your traditions, which is to release a, a prisoner on Passover as a way to demonstrate that God is a God of forgiveness. Right? Again, this is a guy who's crucified lots of people. Okay? He goes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you all a choice. You can choose to release Jesus, who just said some things you don't like, or Barabbas. Okay? Now, what, who is Barabbas? Barabbas is a zealot terrorist. Okay? He's a dagger man. He's basically Al-Qaeda. No, no, he's not Al-Qaeda. He's ISIS the guys that are crazier than Al-Qaeda, okay? What he's been doing is he's been going through the town, finding Jewish collaborators and killing them, right? So he's doing this, right, so that the Jewish collaborator leadership that have brought Jesus in are now faced with, are we going to really release this guy or are we just going to release Jesus? The obvious solution is release Jesus, get embarrassed, and don't allow Barabbas out on the street where he can kill more people. But see, this underestimated how much the Jews hated 
Jesus. Jesus, even in his, even in his passion, is uniting people that hate each other. Think about it. The group of people that are in front of him right now are the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the two groups of people that hated each other more than anybody else in Jewish politics, right? They're now united with Pontius Pilate, who is going to become friends with Herod Antipas, a guy that he hated, who after this he's going to be friends with. Jesus is so disruptive. He is so antagonistic to the status quo that everybody, regardless of how they really feel or what their political alignments are, unite in hating him and trying to kill him. And so the Jews, the Jewish leadership, they're a step ahead of Pilate. They've already incited the crowd. And we have this Horrible image from the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew and Mark where the crowd shouts, Barabbas, give us Barabbas, crucify him. That's where our passage ends this morning. See, there's, there's no off-ramp from God's sovereign plan. There, there's no way out for Pilate. Pilate has planned He is the governor and the judge, and yet he's being governed by the people and judged by the accused. All the while, nothing is going according to his plans. In the same way that on Passover, the Jewish people are demanding the release of a murderer so that they can murder their own Messiah. There is no ruler, no power, too powerful to escape God's plan. There is no system that is so broken or twisted that it can't be used by him for his glory. The overriding theme in the entire passion is this event that should seem to be the most out of God's control, the worst sin in the history of all of dark humanity. All of this is at the center of God's plan. It is the beating heart of his plan for redemption for his people. And so we find Pilate, this reluctant man who doesn't want to kill Jesus, but he can't seem to find a way out. Pilate, the most powerful man in Judea, is powerless. All of these men... It cannot escape the inexorable unfolding of God's plan. And guys, we need to remember this. We need to remember that we are agents of truth and our testimony cannot be silenced by the evil systems of a broken world because our God is sovereign and in control of all things. And so I want to remind you of this. When everything seems like it's falling apart, when everything seems like it's going down the drain. See, when those things happen, we have a tendency to begin to hate the people around us and to begin to kind of silo up and and hide away from a world that we feel is going to pieces. But guys, it's this point, when everything's falling apart, that we need to be moving out of this place. Because see, the world systems that we have, systems that have no truth, systems that don't believe in anything, all of these things leave a trail of broken people destroyed lives, crushed hopes. That's what God says when he says that the harvest is white. 
We, we live among people that are desperate for truth, that have been prepared, been abused and victimized by our society to the place where now, now they're willing to accept if we will have the courage to be witnesses for the truth. Now, I want you to hear this. I'm not calling on you to go out and pick stupid fights over dumb things in coffee houses. That is not being a witness for the truth. Right? I don't want you to go up to somebody at a Starbucks and be like, well, you know what? Let me tell you the definition of a woman. <laughs> Please don't do that. Please don't let that be the takeaway from this sermon for you. No, no, no. Understand this. People don't understand truth because they have denied all truth. And the truth that they need to accept above all things is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They have a problem, and that problem is not that they don't know the definition of a man or a woman. The problem is that they're lost. Right? That they don't have a relationship with Christ. And, and to kind of bring this around full circle, I want to think about the one guy that we haven't talked about this morning. The one guy whose name just kind of appears and disappears. I want you to think for a second what it was like for Barabbas this morning. Okay? Now, Barabbas, we don't know anything about him except that he's a violent man who steals things and kills people. What we do know is that he is imprisoned in the basement of the Antonia Fortress in an unpleasant cell. And he knows what's going to happen to him. There's really only one way that this is going to go for him. And that is he's going to get nailed up on a cross. And so he wakes up that morning and hears the commotion all of the people that he has been trying to kill, all of the Jewish leadership is out in the street right now. And you know what he hears? Yell, 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 yell. Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify him. His blood is on our hands. Now, if you're Barabbas, you figure today's the day. Today's the day that you're going to go to the cross. Today's the day you're going to be tortured to death. And yet, what, it, what must it have felt like to hear the key in the door, have the door swung open, and be led out into the light, and realize that somebody else is going to take the cross for you? Somebody else is going to die in your place. I want you to think for a second what that must have been like. To have been facing literally the most painful way to die possible and then in an instant to realize that you're going to be set free forgiven for everything that you've done brothers and sisters that is the experience of every single Christian in this room every single one of us has sat in a prison of our own making condemned by our own actions to an eternity separated from God. And yet every single one of us can stand in the presence of God. Every single one of us has been reprieved because Christ took the cross for us. And that's the true message this morning, guys. That is the truth that we stand on. That there is no person that is so bad or so evil that their sins cannot be taken away by the sacrifice of Christ. That's the plan. 
And it is beautiful in the sight of God. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And before that, we're going to have a time of prayer. And what I want to encourage you to do is to look at your life. I want you to ask yourself really where you are. Are you right with God? Do you have a relationship with Him? If you were to die today, would He allow you to come into His presence? And if you are not certain about those things, I'd encourage you to come forward so that we can pray with you and help you be certain about it. Maybe you've come to Christ. Maybe you have accepted Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for you, but he hasn't been real. And your life has been marked by fear. You wish you had the kind of courage that Jesus has, the kind of courage that he's calling us to. You want to be an agent of truth, but you don't know how. Well, that's why God brings us together in church. It's not so we can sit for an hour and, well, let's face it, an hour and a half on a Sunday morning and be entertained. God brings us together in churches so that we can be equipped to be his voice. So that we can stand for the oppressed and the marginalized. So that we can be witnesses to that beautiful truth that we were once imprisoned and dead and now we're alive. If you've never joined a church or you're looking for a church, I'd encourage you to come forward and, and join us. We're not perfect, but nobody else is. Maybe you just need somebody to pray for you. Maybe this has been a really hard year or a hard decade or a hard couple of decades. I encourage you to come forward so we can pray for you. I don't, I don't know where you are this morning, but I do know this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood in front of Pontius Pilate and spoke truth in the face of hatred. And he did it so that you could have a relationship with him. And I offer that to you today. You stand and join me as we pray and then stay standing for our song. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with us this morning. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.